Last time, a couple of weeks ago, I ever so briefly related the account of Andrew Fuller and William Carey, whom together God used to ignite the modern mission movement. You'll recall that Fuller's description of Uh, their relationship in 1792 when they started the Baptist Missionary Society, he described in a really unique way. He said, our undertaking to India really appeared to me upon its commencement to be somewhat like a few men who were deliberating about the importance of penetrating into a deep mine which had never before been explored. We had no one to guide us, and while we were deliberating, Carey said, as it were, well... I will go down if you will hold the rope. And so they did. Carey departed the following year for Serampore, India, where he would spend the next 40 years bearing much fruit amidst much suffering. And Fuller spent the next 23 years working tirelessly to raise support and to administrate that mission society from back home in England. This morning, I would like to briefly introduce you to another pioneering Baptist missionary, this time an American, by the name of Adoniram Judson. Judson is a fascinating character in the history of missions, and it's with great restraint that I have to pass by the incredible story of his conversion, um, his remarkable courtship with Anne Hasseltine, who would become his wife, uh, the story of his capture by the French on his way to England to uh, secure mission support in London, and then his improbable escape from that French prison. Those are stories for another time. I want to focus this morning on his mission work. Now, interestingly, Judson did not set out on the mission field as a Baptist. Rather, he was a Congregationalist when he departed from New England in 1812, headed for service in India. Judson and his wife, along with six others, including Luther Rice, who had become in America what Fuller was in England, they all set sail for Serampore. And on that long 114-day journey, Judson studied the scriptures and he began to question the practice of infant baptism. By the time he had arrived in India, he was a convinced Baptist. In Calcutta, Adoniram, his wife, and Rice received believers' baptism by immersion, but this posed an immediate problem. They had been sent out, and they were supported by Congregationalists who practiced infant baptism. So no longer able in good conscience to plant Congregationalist churches like they had been sent out to do, they were forced to renounce their commission and to separate from their Congregationalist mission partners. Ann Judson, Adoniram's wife, described the situation in this way. She said, thus we are confirmed Baptists, not because we wanted to be, but because truth compelled us to be. We have endeavored to count the cost and be prepared for the many severe trials resulting from this change of sentiment. We anticipate the loss of reputation and of the affection and esteem of many of our American friends, 
but the most trying circumstances attending this change and that which has caused us most pain is the separation which must take place between us and our dear missionary associates. We feel that we are alone in the world with no real friend but each other and no one on whom we can depend but God. And so immediately upon their arrival in India, Luther Rice turned right around and returned back to America in order to resign their Congregationalist commission and to raise support from among the Baptists. Meanwhile, the Judsons stayed for a time with William Carey, actually, in Sarampore, India. But they didn't stay long. They were driven by the same impulse that had driven the Apostle Paul to take the gospel to those places where Christ had not been named. And so it was not long before they left Sarampore and sailed across the Bay of Bengal to Rangoon, Burma, that is modern-day Malaysia. As one biographer put it, there, there began a lifelong battle in 108 degree heat with cholera, malaria, dysentery, and unknown miseries that would take two of Judson's wives, seven of his 13 children, and colleague after colleague in death. Life was brutal. For the Judsons as they labored to learn the language and as he attempted to translate the Bible and evangelize the lost, which was everyone in Burma. It was six years before Adoniram baptized his first convert in 1819 and even then the, the harvest did not immediately come. In 1823 the Judsons moved 300 miles inland but Adoniram was soon arrested As a Western spy, he was imprisoned and he was tortured. He spent 18 months in horrid conditions in a Burmese prison. The next year, his wife died. The year after that, their daughter succumbed to illness. Alone in a tiger-infested jungle, Judson spent the better part of two years teetering on the edge of sanity. As he sat beside a grave, he had dug for himself and contemplated his own mortality. He wrote in his journal, God is to me the great unknown. I believe in him, but I find him not. Yet in 1831, the spirit of God began to move in Burma. I want you to listen to what Judson wrote in his diary from that year. He said, the spirit of inquiry is spreading everywhere. Through the whole length and breadth of the land, we have distributed nearly 10,000 tracts, giving to none but those who ask for them. I presume there have been 6,000 applications at the house. Some come two or three months' journey from the borders of Siam and China. Sir, we hear that there is an eternal hell. We are afraid of it. Do give us a writing that will tell us how we may escape it. Others from the frontiers of Cathay, 100 miles north of Ava. Sir, we have seen a writing that tells about an eternal God. Are you the man that gives away such writings? If so, pray, give us one, for we want to know the truth before we die. Others from the interior of the country, where the name of Jesus Christ is little known. Are you Jesus Christ's man? Give us a writing that tells us about Jesus Christ. By 1832, Judson had completed his translation of the New Testament. By 1834, he had completed the Old Testament. 
Also in 1834, Judson remarried to the widow of another missionary, and they spent 10 happy years together. As he continued to revise his translation of the Bible, he preached seven times a week. She who was, she was a scholar in her own right. She translated the Pilgrim's Progress into the Burmese language. They had eight children, five of whom uh, survived into adulthood, which was pretty good in the early 19th century, even for the civilized world, let alone out on the frontiers of Burma. But then in the early 1840s, sickness struck again. His wife, Sarah, died in 1845, and Judson died five years later. The question is, what did Judson have to show for all of these years, 30 plus years of suffering service in the ministry of the gospel where Jesus Christ was not known? What did he have to show for all of the pain, all of the loss, all of the grief, all of the illness, all of the death? Well, only the light of eternity will reveal all that Christ accomplished through Judson and his three wives, who, let it be known, were every bit as courageous as he was. But we know this. We know that what Judson left behind was an entire Burmese Bible, a Burmese to English dictionary, hundreds of Burmese converts, and today about 3,700 Baptist churches in Myanmar can trace their lineage to Judson's ministry. Now, some may look at Judson's story and say, but look at what it cost him. Countless sufferings, the temporary loss of his sanity, two wives, three children. Well, yes, it did cost him that. But it should be mentioned that every child in those days had about a 50-50 chance of survival no matter where they lived. And Judson's third wife, after his death, moved back to New England, where there in New England, in the civilized world, she contracted tuberculosis and died three years later. The point is, everyone dies. The driving passion of your life must not be not to die. You'll fail. Rather, your driving passion ought to be to make your life count. And my purpose this morning is to convince you that what counts most is to give your life to make Christ known among the nations, to fulfill the great commission and so usher in the end of the age, whether that be here in Nixa as part of a missional church, which will be the case with most of you, or out there in the jungles of Burma or somewhere else where Christ is not known, which may be some of you. Make your life count in the fulfillment of the great commission to make Christ known among the nations. John Piper, reflecting on Jesus' words in John 12, 24, where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He writes, The question is not whether we will die, but whether we will die in a way that bears much fruit. At First Baptist Nixa, let's make our lives and our deaths count. Now, for the past few weeks in Romans, we've been thinking through the subject of missions and the church. In the second half of Romans 15, 
Paul, having concluded his treatise on redemptive theology, that was chapters 1 to 15, he turns his attention to his main purpose in writing, which is to secure a missions partnership with the church at Rome. The year is AD 57. Paul has been preaching the gospel and planting churches throughout the Eastern Roman Empire for about 10 years now. And he's sensing that it's, it's time for him to press on to the West, to Spain and, and beyond. But in order to accomplish this mission, he needs a new sending church that's located right on the, the edge between the East and the West, the edge of the frontier of the Western Empire, a church that will be able to supply him with his needs for the journey and then send him out. And he wants the church at Rome to be that sending church. So the second half of Romans 15 tells us a great deal about the relationship between the local church and the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations. We saw in the first sermon in this series why Paul wanted to partner with the Roman church. What was it about them that attracted him to them? Well, it wasn't merely a matter of their strategic location, although that was certainly part of it. Rather, we noted from verse 14 of Romans 15, as well as all the way back in Romans 1.8, that Paul wanted to partner with the Roman church because of their faith, their goodness, their knowledge, and their wisdom. He thought they would make a good mission partner church. A church that was capable of accomplishing the three tasks of a missional church. Namely, proclaiming the gospel in word and in deed right where they are. Number two, praying fervently and faithfully for their mission partners who are scattered abroad. And third, providing the finances necessary for that mission. But this, pas uh, this passage not only tells us about what Paul considered to be a good missional church, it also reveals a great deal about Paul the missionary. In fact, we're in the process of identifying seven characteristics of a Pauline missionary. The driving thesis of this four-part study in the second half of Romans 15, it's written for you at the top of your bulletin. It's this. We want to be, at First Baptist Nixa, we want to be the kind of church that Paul would want to partner with. And we want to partner with the kind of missionaries that Paul was. That's what we're after in these four weeks. So far, we've seen that a Pauline missionary is marked by, number one, an orthodox theology. Because as we saw earlier, an essential component of the Great Commission is teaching all the words of Christ, right? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. Therefore, a missionary must have a good grasp of this, right? All the words of Christ. And he needs to be able to explain them to others. To put it another way, the missionary needs to be able to write something like Romans, which is what we saw Paul had done in verse 15. Second, he's marked by a confident authority. 
Pauline missionaries know that they have been called and commissioned by Christ. And they need to know that. They need to be confident that they have been called, set apart, sent out by Christ through the power of the Spirit, through the instrumentation of a local church, if they are to have the boldness to preach Christ among the nations, many of which are hostile or indifferent to the gospel. You've got to have confidence knowing I've been sent here if you're going to stay there when they tell you we don't want you here. Third, they need to have a theocentric, that is a God-centered philosophy. In verse 16, we saw that Paul viewed the task of missions quite differently than many people do. He viewed himself as a priest of God out amongst the the pastures of the world, right? Gathering sacrificial lambs, slaying them with the sword of the gospel and offering them as an acceptable sacrifice to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Ultimately, we saw that missionaries must go out of a love for God and his glory, which I want to be clear is not to be divorced from compassion and love for sinners. It's not that they love God and his glory or they love sinners. It's that they love God and his glory and that's why they love sinners. The love of the glory of God will remain even when the love of sinners fades in the face of rejection and persecution. And fourth, A Pauline missionary has a Calvinistic soteriology, which means doctrine of salvation, right? They they need to know that salvation is a work of God's sovereign grace from beginning to end. We saw this in verses 17 to 18 when Paul is talking about all that Christ accomplished among me over or um, through me, rather, that Christ accomplished through me over the course of the past 10 years. We saw that Pauline missionaries need to know and love the truths that Paul wrote in Romans 9 through 11, namely that all those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved and that those who call upon Christ are precisely those who have been chosen in Christ from before the foundations of the world. They need to be like Andrew Fuller and William Carey and Adoniram Judson for that matter. All of them identified themselves as Calvinists, combining a high view of God's sovereignty and salvation with an understanding that God uses missionaries to accomplish that salvation. He uses missionary preaching to save his elect from amongst every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Believing that salvation depends not upon human will or human effort, but upon God who has mercy, Romans 9, 16, will prevent the missionary from giving into pragmatism, doing what works rather than what God has commanded, or despair when visible results are not immediately forthcoming. I sincerely doubt that anyone without a steadfast faith in God's electing grace could have stayed in India for seven years, William Carey, or Burma for six years, Adoniram Judson, amidst tremendous suffering before they saw even one convert. Who does that without giving up? People who believe Romans 9 through 11 do. They stayed through the suffering, through the years of apparently fruitless toil, And in due time, they reaped an incredible harvest. We need robust, 
Calvinist, that is Pauline missionaries. Today, number five, we're going to pick up the last three marks of a Pauline missionary. The fifth mark is a discipleship-focused methodology. Now, what I mean by that is that their ministry is aimed at the making of disciples, not merely decisions. It's aimed at the making of Christians, not merely converts. When I was up at First Baptist Buffalo, a pastor of the Assemblies of God Church down the street was very involved in missions through the Assemblies Global Headquarters in Springfield. Uh, He was always gone, it seemed, on a mission trip to Africa. And I asked him about his mission work one time, and he told me about the enormous crusades that they would hold that drew tens of thousands of people to hear the gospel, and they would see thousands of professions of faith. And I didn't say anything at the time, but, but I had heard about these African crusades from other sources who were skeptical, to say the least, about the lasting impact of crusade evangelism in Africa and about the legitimacy of the so-called conversions that were occurring there. And I share their skepticism. I'm skeptical about the long-term effectiveness of mass evangelism, like crusade evangelism, as a missions methodology. The fact is that Jesus did not commission the church to make converts on the basis of a decision made one night in a massive soccer stadium. He commissioned the church to make disciples who would then be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and then would be taught to obey all the words of Christ. And question, where are disciples baptized? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And where are they taught to obey all the words of Christ? In a gathered church. And how long does it take to be taught to obey all the words of Christ? The rest of their lives. The Great Commission is more than evangelism. And I don't want to cast aspersions upon the assemblies of God and upon their their mission methodology. Mass evangelism is only one small part of all that they do worldwide. They plant churches as well. But there's a difference between reaching the nations and planting churches and reaching the nations by planting churches. And I suggest that we want to work with missionaries who do the latter. That is, we want to partner with missionaries who have a discipleship-focused methodology. We want to partner with missionaries who understand that their task does not end with evangelism. It begins with evangelism and is then carried out with baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, incorporation into a local church where they will be taught to obey all the words that Christ has commanded. Now, where am I getting this from Romans 15? Look with me at verse 18. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. Notice how Paul describes the goal of his ministry. In fact, he's describing the goal of Christ's ministry through him. And it's not what we might expect. I might have expected Paul to say that his aim was to bring the Gentiles to faith. 
But instead he says to bring the Gentiles to obedience. Is that significant? I think so. It's reminiscent of Paul's words at the beginning of Romans, where he likewise described the aim of his apostolic ministry back in Romans 1.5, when he says that we've received grace and apostleship through Christ to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Now, we were there two years ago in September of 2018. And I argued at that time that what Paul means by the obedience of faith is the obedience that comes from faith, that arises from faith, the obedience that is the inevitable fruit of saving faith. And I think that he means the same thing here in Romans 15, 18. And again, as we'll see in a few weeks in Romans 16, 26. When Paul thought about the goal of his ministry, when Paul sat there and he woke up in the morning in Ephesus or Corinth or eventually in Rome, and he says, what am I doing here? He thought, I was sent by Christ to bring about the obedience of faith. When he thought about the goal of his ministry, it was not the making of momentary decisions that is bringing people to faith. It was the making of lifelong disciples, that is, bringing people to the obedience of faith. You can bring people to faith simply by declaring the gospel to them, whether that takes place in a coffee shop or or in a soccer stadium. And that's good, but it's only the beginning. You cannot bring people to the obedience of faith without then bringing them into the fellowship of a local church where they will receive the day by day, week by week, year by year teaching of all of the words of Christ. And they will receive the help and the support and the exhortation and the accountability that they need to actually walk in obedience to that word of Christ in every aspect of their lives. And without that lifelong growth in obedience and in transformation into the image of Christ, guess what? Their faith is worthless. It's dead. They're not actually disciples. They just made a decision. Like so many decisions made in emotionally charged moments under the powerful psychological pressures that are provoked in mass evangelistic settings, which is why I think that's actually a dangerous method of missions. So when we talk in, to prospective mission partners, we need to ask about their methodology. Because if it's not centered on the establishing of strong, healthy, biblical churches where lifelong disciples are made and nurtured and grown, then we ought not support them. If they're not thinking past the moment of the decision of faith to the lifelong obedience of faith, then they're not thinking about missions the way that Paul thought about missions. For Paul, the goal of missions was the obedience of faith, which takes years and strong churches, not moments and packed stadiums. Sixth, the sixth mark of a Pauline missionary is a charismatic pneumatology. Now, let me explain that word. It kind of fits with the the system that I have going here. 
I know it's not a word that you're very familiar with. Pneuma is the Greek word for spirit. And so pneumatology is a doctrine of the Holy Spirit. What kind of doctrine of the Holy Spirit do Pauline missionaries have? Well, they have a charismatic doctrine of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Well, if you remember back to the spring, we were in Romans chapter 12, looking at verses 3 through 8, and we saw that the Greek word charismata is the word that is translated gifts. The charismatic gifts are the gifts given by the Holy Spirit to the church for the work of the ministry. And at that time, we spoke at length about these charismatic gifts. In fact, I preached two sermons entitled, The Charismatic Church. That is a church that possesses and practices the charismatic gifts. And my contention was then and is still that biblically speaking, every true believer is a charismatic and every true church is a charismatic church. That is, every true believer is baptized by the spirit and possesses the gifts of the spirit distributed according to the sovereign will of the Spirit. And every true church is comprised of true believers who have truly been baptized in the Spirit and have received the gift of the Spirit. So every true believer is a charismatic. Every true church is a charismatic church. The distinction that exists today between charismatic and non-charismatic is, in my view, a false distinction. Any believer who's not baptized by the Spirit is not a true believer, and any church that does not possess and practice the gifts of the Spirit is not a true church. We, Baptists though we are, should not be afraid of the term charismatic. It's a biblical term. It's our term. And we shouldn't concede it to the Pentecostals. We should not force upon the biblical text a false distinction between those gifts which we deem miraculous, which have ceased, according to this view, and those gifts which are deemed non-miraculous and have not ceased but continue, according to this view. I take that view and I wrap it in this nice little package and I crumple it up and I throw it where it belongs, that is, in the theological trash can. All gifts of the Holy Spirit are supernatural. And all continue throughout the present age, though not necessarily in the same proportion or degree or distribution in every age. I propose, as I did back in the spring, I do so now, that the church experiences, that is the global church, experiences extraordinary seasons in which they see the spirit work in extraordinary ways through the more extraordinary gifts. Like in the book of Acts, that was an extraordinary season in the life of the church. And so the spirit worked in extraordinary ways through extraordinary gifts. And the church normally experiences ordinary seasons in which the Spirit works in ordinary ways through more ordinary gifts, like the church that you see in First and Second Timothy and Titus. Okay, That's kind of a recap of my view of the spiritual gifts back in Romans 12. Here's where that intersects with missions. 
I propose that pioneering missions, that is taking the gospel where it's not, taking the name of Christ where he's not been named, is an extraordinary ministry that is sometimes, perhaps often, but not always, accompanied by extraordinary gifts and the working of the Spirit. When I read the book of Acts, for instance, which is a book about early church missions, and I see the apostles pushing back the kingdom of darkness with the gospel of light, I find that Peter and Paul and the rest of the church frequently experience what Luke refers to as signs and wonders, and that those signs and wonders serve to authenticate the gospel and their authority as the messengers of God. I think that's exactly what Paul is describing here in verses 18 and 19 of Romans 15 when he says, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. The purpose of signs and wonders is to authenticate the word and the witnesses of God. The signs and the wonders are not the point in themselves. They're not an end in themselves. The goal is not to amaze people with extraordinary power. The goal, rather, is to convince them, these people are from God. I should listen to what they say. That's the way the author of Hebrews described their use in Hebrews 2, 3, and 4. The message was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. What was happening through these signs and wonders and various miracles? God was bearing witness to his word and to his servants. And so Paul says, that's the way I minister. I minister in word and deed, the gospel of Christ and the power of signs and wonders, all of which are performed by the power of the spirit of God. And that is what brought the the Gentiles to obedience. So what does this mean for our missionary partners? Let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It does not mean that they must have witnessed divine healing or signs and wonders. In fact, They're probably coming from ordinary ministry where the church is already established and the spirit is working in the ordinary ways through the ordinary gifts. I would not expect them to have seen such things in such settings. Rather, it means two things. Number one, it means that they must conceive of their ministry in supernatural terms. Missions is not merely going into another culture to a people with a different worldview and trying to convince them intellectually of the rightness of your worldview. That's not what missions is. Missionaries mustn't go armed merely with intellectual, philosophical, and rational arguments. Their struggle is not against flesh and blood and worldviews. The problem they face is not predominantly intellectual, it is spiritual. They are entering into a spiritual war zone, and therefore they need to go in with the power of the Spirit in word and deed in the power of signs and wonders if God should so will. 
They must go in the confident hope that through the preaching of the gospel, God will raise up sinners from spiritual death to spiritual life. And they need to go open to the idea that God can and sometimes does raise up people from physical death to physical life in order to testify to the word of the gospel and to the glory of God. Missionaries are going to fight a supernatural battle and they need to be armed with supernatural weapons. Secondly, it means that they recognize that there's a difference between the ordinary and the extraordinary ministry and that what they're doing is embarking upon the extraordinary. Therefore, words like signs and wonders don't freak them out. They rather expect the spirit to do such things as they launch their assault upon the kingdom of darkness. So just to be painfully clear, by charismatic, I do not mean prospective missionaries must speak in tongues or have the gift of prophecy or have experience with healing or other kinds of miracles. Rather, I want them to be biblically open to such gifts of the spirit because they are embarking upon a spiritual war and they need spiritual power. The ministry of the gospel is both word and deed. It is the verbal and the visual. In the ordinary ministry setting, like First Baptist Nixa, for instance, the gospel has been in southwest Missouri for 150 years. This church is 106 years old. We're in the ordinary. In the ordinary ministry setting, those deeds, that visual manifestation of the Spirit's power is you. It's you. The radically transformed lives of the saints bears greater witness to the power of God and the veracity of the gospel than miracles ever could. In this setting, give me a saint whose life has been radically transformed by the spirit and who exhibits the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control over someone who speaks in tongues any day. I want that gospel. The problem is out on the mission field where Christ has not been named, there are no churches, there are no saints. And so in those settings, sometimes, often, it pleases God to bear witness to his gospel and his power through signs and wonders. And Pauline missionaries know this. Lastly, the mark of a Pauline missionary is that they have a pioneering missiology. That is, they understand the task of missions is to take the gospel where it isn't, to take the name of Christ where it is not known, to plant churches where none exist, and to make disciples where the word of Christ has not yet been heard and is not obeyed. Verse 19. So that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Now, if you don't know your Mediterranean geography, that's totally okay. Paul's describing the northeastern quadrant 
of the Mediterranean, the northeastern arc. Right? Jerusalem, of course, was where Paul departed from when he was converted on the road to Damascus, when Christ called and commissioned him for the Gentile mission. Illyricum is way around to the north and the west of Macedonia. It's the modern-day Baltic states, some of them at least. Croatia, Slovenia, Serbia, Kosovo, Bosnia, Albania, that region. Now notice three points about Paul's statement in these verses. First, Paul claims to have fulfilled his ministry, the ministry of the gospel in these regions. He says, my work here is done. But how could that be? Because we're talking about a period of only about 10 years during which Paul mainly stuck to the major cities. Pisidian Antioch, Lystra, Derby, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth, Ephesus, and so forth. Paul didn't preach in every city. He didn't preach to every individual. So how is it that he can say, my job here is done. My ministry is fulfilled. It's not the job of the missionary to preach the gospel to every person in every city. It's the job of the missionary to plant churches in regions where the name of Christ is not known. And then it's the job of the church to reach their city and the surrounding region. Paul had planted churches capable of evangelizing the regions from Jerusalem to Illyricum. It was now time for him to move on and let the churches that he had planted do their job. Second, Paul's passion was to lay new foundations, not to build upon established foundations. There are other people who are called to do that. People like Timothy and Apollos. That's in fact the primary distinction between the pastor and the missionary. Missionaries lay foundations of the church in a given region where no churches exist, and then they pass off the responsibility for building on that foundation to qualified pastors who continue the work while the missionaries go elsewhere to to build new foundations where none exist. Now, it seems to me this is inherent in the missionary calling. Missionaries are pioneers. Doug Moo writes, Paul here indicates that he believed that God was, had given him the ministry of establishing strategic churches in virgin gospel territory. Like the early American pioneers who pulled up stakes anytime they could see the smoke from another person's cabin, Paul felt crowded by too many Christians. Missionaries, get this, missionaries do not complete the Great Commission. That's not their job. Churches complete the Great Commission. Missionaries plant churches that complete the Great Commission. And once those churches are planted and are able to get to work, the missionary moves on. Third, Paul then quotes Isaiah 52, 15 to show that he saw his missionary calling as part of God's foreordained plan to reach the nations with the gospel of Christ and to create for himself worshipers from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. In other words, missionaries see themselves as part of God's global redemptive plan. Therefore, missionaries are not content nor satisfied to stay where the harvest is, quote, ripe. They are driven by a God-given passion to go plant seeds where none have been planted. Missionaries are not harvesters. They're planters. 
churches are harvesters. And this has massive ramifications for our church's mission philosophy. Only a little tiny of which I'm going to mention this morning. I am convinced that our mission strategy ought to be directed towards those nations that have never heard the name of Christ and where there are no churches yet, rather than to places where churches already exist and they are responsible for fulfilling the Great Commission. In other words, I don't think our mission strategy, let's go where people are receptive. I don't think that's biblical. I think our mission strategy should be, let's go where no one's ever heard. And that means the kind of missionaries that we want to partner with share that same burden. I want to hear our missionaries say, why would I go where Christ is already proclaimed, where the church already exists? Let them reach their own people in their own region. Rather, I'm going where there is no gospel, where there is no church, because God has promised that he has a people there waiting to be gathered, and I'm going to go find them. That's the heart of the pioneer, that's the heart of the Pauline missionary, and that's the kind of missionary that we want to partner with. To the church has been given the great commission to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things that Christ has commanded us. And the way that the church accomplishes this commission is by making disciples of our own nation... And by sending missionaries out to those nations where Christ is not known. The time has come for First Baptist Nixa to get serious about its responsibility with the Great Commission. Our Father, I've given us a lot this morning. And I pray that, Lord, these would not be words that would be quickly forgotten over lunch and in the course of an afternoon nap, but rather would be meditated upon. Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray for myself and for these people that there would be right now a holy gravity that would fall upon them, that would cause them to ask, how is my life going to count? How can I live my life in such a way that a hundred years from now, I will be glad that I spent it in that way? What's my role in fulfilling the Great Commission? What can I do? And Lord, I pray, I plead with you that those questions would deeply disturb us out of our middle-class complacency. Help us. Help us make our lives count. Make our deaths count. Make our jobs count. Make our money count. Make our gifts count. In order that Christ may be known among the nations. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.